Well, good morning, everyone. Just remember, if we go long, it's those announcements. It's not the sermon. <laughs> good singing this morning. I uh, was in the back for a little while just listening, and man, whew, you, guys, you guys got some pipes. Good job. We're going to begin a journey uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to begin today. And when I say begin, we're not going to get far, but you're used to that by now with me. Mark is only 16 chapters. I preach about once a month, so I figure by 2030 we should be wrapping, <laughs> wrapping this up. Hey, my plan is that he comes back before I'm finished. <laughs> you guys all right with that? But if not, I may have to, uh, you know extend it. So starting the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark is really a, a call to action, and uh, my mind couldn't help but think of that great old Western with those great Western heroes, uh, Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, Martin Short, uh, the three amigos. Not really a Western as much as a comedy farce, but uh, the three amigos, if you don't know them, are, are really actors. Uh, but they get hired to go down to Mexico to visit old El Guapo. Uh, but right before they're supposed to go down, they get fired by the movie studio, and they, steal, they take their costumes back, and they're like, we need, we need our outfits. So they decide the only way to get their outfits is to break into the studio lot at night. So you have uh, Steve Martin is up on the roof of a building trying to kind of be the lookout and give the signal to the other guys, you know, when the coast is clear. And he's trying to be subtle at first, and he just... You know, and they're, they're not paying any attention, you know. So he, he gets more exaggerated, you know, starts with the woohoo, woohoo, and it finally turns into look up here, look up here. <laughs> and he finally says, hey, you guys. The idea is, is subtlety didn't work. A and Mark, I titled this sermon, Mark My Words. It's written by Mark, and Mark has no intention of being subtle. He's very, very specific about what he wants you to think and believe about Jesus Christ. And it's not just a story of Jesus that you sit around the campfire and have marshmallows in your hot chocolate and everybody sings kumbaya at the end. His, his idea is that you would mark his words. It's not a threat, but it's that you should take heed. It's a call to action. He doesn't want you to dismiss what he's saying. And he says, Jesus, accept him or reject him but know that there are consequences to either decision. Accepting him is pledging our loyalty and our allegiance to the true king and laying aside our rights, our possessions, our very lives in order to follow him into death, whereby we experience resurrection, eternal life, and a full inheritance in the kingdom of God. Jesus is not interested in fans or sympathizers. He is seeking committed followers, disciples, apprentices that will follow not just his teaching but his way his life to reject him is not just to reject a good moral teacher or a religious fanatic or a military leader to reject jesus is to reject the very son of god and thereby rejecting yahweh himself to do that is to give up all hope of being reconciled to god to being saved to being redeemed rescued Mark does not leave us with the luxury of just hearing a nice story. He calls us to choose a side. How will you choose? 
I suggest you choose wisely. Maybe you've never heard the story before, so consider an invitation from Jesus. Come and see. Come and hear. Come experience all that I am. Maybe you chose long ago, but somewhere along the way, you, you stopped following and you just be a bystander. Well, I would challenge you that you listen again. Hear Jesus afresh and anew. Take a fresh look and to redecide. Get back in the game. And if you're today, you're here, you're a committed follower of Jesus, then keep following. Open your eyes and your heart and learn something new. Be reinvigorated by who Jesus is and what he has to say. So we're going to, before I jump in, this is going to be a little bit more like a Sunday school class, folks. Before I can get in and, and start to dissect what's written, you have to know the context. You have to know the background. You have to know the culture. And it's going to take me a little bit to do that, so it's not going to leave me a lot of time. So I only tried to get through three verses. And we'll see how we, see how we make out today, all right? But before we do, let, let me just ask the Lord Jesus to be present here with us. Lord Jesus, we know that you are present. Wherever two or three are gathered in your name, like Tom said, you are here among us. So, Lord, we know that you are present in our worship, and, and may you receive that as it is offered. But, Lord, may we continue our worship now as we open our hearts to receive from your word. And, Lord, what we want to receive is you. So, Lord, I pray whether we've read through the gospel, this is our first time or our hundredth time, that, that we would see you in fresh, new ways. Lord, because you are always speaking, you are always moving, you are always calling us to further action. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand everything that you would have for us this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Mark starts his gospel this way in chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He says it's the beginning of the gospel, right? And this, this is really, as a narrator, Mark's only insertion of himself into the work. The rest of it is the actions and words and the story of Christ. So if, if Mark is inserting himself here at the beginning, I feel like we should pay special attention to these opening verses because he was very intentional about what he wrote. But before we can understand what he wrote, I think we should try to understand who he is, who he was. Mark is also called John Mark. You find him several times in Scripture in the book of Acts. We find out that because of his name, John Mark, he has both a Hebrew and a Roman name. John is, is Jonas, right? Um, and, and Mark is just like Marcus Aurelius and Mark Anthony and, and the Roman names that you're familiar with. So he was kind of a two-culture kind of a guy. We don't hear anything about Mark's father, but we know that his mother, and she was, they were a wealthy family because their, their house was used by the early church. If you remember in the book of Acts, when Peter was uh, released from prison by the angels and the people were home praying for Peter, Peter knocks on the door and the, little, and the girl that answers is so excited, she forgets to let Peter in and goes and says, Peter's here. But they're in John Mark's mother's house when that occurs. Uh, we know that uh, Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas was known as the son of encouragement, and he introduced Paul to the, to the first century church. Uh, Mark went along with Paul and Barnabas on the very first missionary journey when they were sent out. But somewhere along the way, Mark left. And the scripture doesn't tell us exactly why, but the indication is it wasn't for a good reason. He didn't get sick, maybe homesick. Maybe he got fearful of the persecution they were facing. Or maybe it was just too much for him. We're not sure why, but he left. And because of that, when the second missionary journey was about to launch, Barnabas brings Mark along. He's like, hey, Mark wants to come back. Isn't that great? 
And Paul was a hardliner. He was like, he's a quitter. I don't take no quitters with me. Now, Paul was, was, was a little tough, and Paul maybe should have remembered when, when Barnabas brought him to the church, Paul was known as the Christian killer, uh, so maybe he should have given a second chance. But Paul, I believe, was led by the Holy Spirit, but him and Barnabas had such a division in their opinion that they actually separated. And Barnabas took Mark and went this way, and Paul ended up taking Silas and going this way. I think it was used by the Spirit because now they doubled their efforts and twice as many people heard the gospel, but there was a division there. Peter, we find that uh, he adopts Mark at some point and calls him his very own son, his son in, in a spiritual sense. First Peter 5 tells us that. And uh, many believe that Mark's writings are really just a compilation of Peter's sermons. Some people would even go as far as call it the Gospel of Peter because Mark was such a close companion to Peter and wrote down the things that he said. He was his main source because Mark would not have been an eyewitness to most of the events. But there is an indication that Mark did follow Jesus at least somewhat, um, but not, not as closely, obviously, as the apostles did. We find out later in life, Paul actually reclaims Mark, which is a good thing. I think par partly Mark was attracted to Peter because Peter was the one who denied Christ three times. And Mark understood what it was to, to feel that sense of rejection and need to be restored. And, and Peter allowed him to do that. But Paul, later on to the church in Colossae, he calls Mark his fellow worker and tells them to welcome him. When Paul is in prison, Mark actually goes to minister to him. And in Philemon, he says he was an encouragement to me while I was in prison. But at the very end of his life, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul actually says, Timothy, when you come to visit me, and, and Paul is pretty sure it'll be his last visit, he says, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me for the ministry. I love that, right? Even, even at the end there, Paul is restoring Mark. And so if you're a Mark or a Peter out there and you've rejected Christ or denied Christ or, or given up somewhere along the way, Christ hasn't given up on you. Uh, when did Mark write this? Uh, author... Uh, Historians, uh, theologians are a little bit divided, but they've narrowed it down to somewhere in the late 50s or early 60s, not the 1950s, right? He wasn't at the sock hop with Elvis writing this down. I'm talking about the actual 50s, 50 AD to 60 AD, somewhere in that time frame, maybe as late as 65 AD. Most likely, it's the earliest written of all the Gospels. Both Matthew and Luke seem to use Mark extensively in their own work and use him as, as a reference. Mark very much focuses on the deeds more than the words of Jesus. He includes the words, but not the long discourses like the other gospel writers have. Mark is very uh, much about action. He includes more miracles than any of the other gospels. Um, Mark is, uses the word immediately more than 42 times in his gospel. So that it just seems like there's constant flow of action. Mark, I think, would have been a guy that would have liked TikTok. Right, because it's just quick, short little things. I don't know anything about TikTok, but I know that they're short and they're annoying. But um, Mark was one, he, he was more like a photographer, right? Took the snapshot and then went on to the next scene. He doesn't stay in any one place too long. As a matter of fact, he uses the historical present tense 150 times, meaning when he talks about Jesus, he says, Jesus comes, Jesus says, Jesus heals. All those are in the present tense to Mark as if they're actually still happening. Right? Twelve of the 16 chapters in Mark begin with the word end. 
In other words, it's connected to what just happened, and now this is happening. There's a constant rush of action. There's a directness, but there's a brevity. Mark is the most translated of all the New Testament writings, partly because I think it's short, so it's easiest to translate into another language, but also because Mark is writing from the perspective of, of to a Gentile audience, that it explains a lot of the, the Jewish customs that most of the Jews would have already been familiar with. So I think that's part of the reason, too. It, it helps with clarity. So his original audience, I believe Mark wrote to the church that was in Rome. These would have been mostly Gentile believers, and that's why he explains a lot of the Aramaic words that he uses, and he also explains a lot of the Jewish customs that the other gospel writers don't feel the need to explain. But th this church in Rome was under tremendous persecution. Around the year 64 AD, there was a fire that decimated about 80% of, of Rome. And it was most likely started by Nero himself, but I don't think he intended the devastation that ensued, but he needed a scapegoat when all was said and done. So who did he blame? The Christians, right? They became an easy target for him. And, and at that point, Christians became persona non grata and they became persecuted and attacked. As a matter of fact, uh, Nero was especially cruel. He would actually take believers, dip them in pitch and set them afire and use them as torches to light his garden in the evenings. Others he fed the lions, others he used in the gladiator games, he crucified many. And this was the age that Mark and the culture that Mark is choosing uh, to write to. It tells us in Galatians that Jesus came when the, God chose the fullness of time had come, he sent his son into the world. There was a very specific moment and place in time that God said, this is where I go and send my son into this culture. So in order to understand the gospel, I believe we have to understand a first century Christian Jewish culture. Now, to be a Christian was, was to understand that there was no New Testament, right, in the first century for the most part. It was still being compiled, being written. So when they met together as a church, they studied the scriptures, they used the Old Testament scriptures. When they would proclaim the good news of Jesus to, to folks all around the world, they were preaching from the Old Testament scriptures, and obviously talking about the life and works of Jesus of Nazareth, but they use the Old Testament. And I think that's important for us to remember that the, we don't see the New Testament as, as a standalone. You can only really view the New Testament as, as filtered through the lens of the Old Testament. And it's important that we understand that because that's how they would have been seeing it then. But he was writing to a persecuted group, reminding them that Christ suffered too. He was falsely accused also. He was betrayed by someone close to him. And the message was to endure, but also that Christ himself said, you will face tribulation and persecution and know that when you do, blessed are you. And there were close ties to the Jewish community in Jerusalem that revolted against the Roman Empire in about 66 AD. So that didn't make them any more popular of, of as a church in Rome because there was an outright, outright revolution. So uh, they, were, they were put to death in the droves and many fled. There were also 60 million slaves counted at one time in the Roman Empire. And Mark is going to present Jesus as the servant. As a matter of fact, his gospel culminates in, in Mark 10.45, where Jesus himself says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, think about the kingdom that Christ talked about, though, where he said, If you are humiliated, then you will be exalted. If you will make yourself the lowest or the least, you will be the greatest in the kingdom. 
Do you think that message appealed to a society that had 60 million slaves in it? I think it did, and I think it does. Now, Rome, the dictators in Rome, the emperors were called Caesar, and they would often call themselves the savior of the world. They talked about the Pax Romana, you know, the peace that Rome initiated throughout the known world. Of course, that peace only existed at the threat of a sword, and if you paid your taxes. There was also a very Jewish expectation of a military leader that would come and deliver the nation of Israel from those oppressors. And it goes back 700 years BC when the Assyrians first started to come attack the northern kingdom and carry them into exile. Then after them in the 600s, the Babylonians came and Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and carried most of the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. And of course, Babylon was followed by the Persian Empire, where under the Persian Empire, Cyrus actually let some of the Jews go back and rebuild the, the, the city and the temple, but they were still considered a vassal and, and, and owed um, tax to the Persian Empire. After them, Alexander the Great and the Greeks came. And, and after Alexander died, his, his generals kind of kept fighting over different parts of the territory. And you had the, uh, the one general was Ptolemy, and he was down in Egypt. And you had the other general was Seleucid, and he was up in Syria, and what's right in between is Israel. So constantly, there are hundreds of years from 300 to 100 uh, BC, just these battles, some in the north, some in the south, and sometimes they were just passing through. But Israel was in a constant state of warfare and upheaval for hundreds of years. Now, there was a brief period of time where the Jewish people revolted against both actually the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, but because they were kind of both weak at the time, the, the Maccabees, the Maccabean rebellion and revolt occurred. The, the Feast of Hanukkah celebrates uh, part of the, that victory with, with the lighting of the menorah that lasted for, for eight nights. But uh, Judas Maccabeus, they called him Judas the Hammer. And, and he revolted and, and led a successful rebellion against the, the Greek authorities. And for a short period of time, less than 100 years, the, the, the state of Israel was given autonomy. Not independence, but they were allowed to govern themselves. But of course, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't not become a problem. And so, of course, when Rome came on the scene, they stamped down again and, and put their foot on the necks of Israel. So the, the nation, the people of Israel were, were in, in crying out in desperation for the Messiah, the one who would come and deliver them. But they were looking for a military person, someone who would come and conquer uh, the Romans at that time or whoever was in power. Um, they wanted freedom from their oppressors. But when Mark presents this suffering servant, right, there's, <laughs> this is not what they were expecting. But actually, if you read through Isaiah, Isaiah, when, when he gets done his judgments in his first 39 chapters, starting in verse four, uh, chapter 40 and going to the end, but especially in chapters 52 and 53, he paints this portrait of, of a servant who would come to be the Messiah. And the servant would have to suffer and actually give up his life and die for the sins of the people. And for some reason, that wasn't popular amongst uh, a lot of the, st the students and the theologians of the day. They, they, they didn't really look at those scriptures, but that's what Mark is going to emphasize, and it's not what they were expecting. Mark jumps right into the action. He doesn't talk about the birth or, or the announcement or nativity like, like the other gospels do because no one cares about the pedigree of a slave. You just get right in and talk about his mission and his ministry, and that's where Mark jumps in. Paul had already written by this time his letter to the Romans. And actually in Paul's letter, he says, in, in a very early on in verse, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So when Mark emphasizes here the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have to ask, what is the gospel? I'm sure you've all heard that word, but do you really know what it means? Sometimes words are, are so frequently used in church or circles of Christianity that it loses its impact and its meaning. But does it mean God loves you? Jesus died for your sins? How would you describe or explain the gospel? In the Old Testament, they would use, uh, the word actually means good news or glad tidings. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew section of scripture, they would use the word beser or besora, which is either a verb or a noun. The Greek is uh, euangelon, which is a compound word, which is eu, which is eu, and means good, and angelon, which means announcement. So you put that together and you get the glad tidings. But back in the Old Testament, in the, in the scripture, they would use the word uh, beser, talking about a royal announcement. David would hear from his army, his commanders, that his, his army was victorious in battle. Or there would be a, a besorah. After David uh, was, going, was about to die and pass off the scene, he sent out a herald to announce the new ruler, that Solomon would be king. It always had to do with, with kings and authority, but, but a change in situation. But after Solomon, there were a bunch of bad news kings who came along, and they led the nation of Israel by their corruption into their own destruction. But there was also a messianic use of, of, of that idea of good news, of glad tidings. Uh, if, if you would, you want to turn to the book of Isaiah. We, we read as a congregation from a chapter in Isaiah, but we're going to look in chapter 40, verses 9 and 10, where Isaiah is told this, Go on up to a high, 40, verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There's, there's that term, good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. And here's Isaiah talking about this idea of this servant who's going to come, but the servant is the Lord himself. And that, that was a confusing concept, and, and, and there's, there was a, a near and a far fulfillment to, the, to this prophecy with Isaiah, but I believe Isaiah is looking down you know, the, the, the circuits of time and seeing when Jesus would arrive. But he's talking about this good news that God would come with might. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And so it brought into common, the common man was able to have better access to the scriptures when it was, was translated into Greek because it made it uh, um, more abundant, easier to find. So many of the first century uh, Jewish people would have been familiar with the Greek writing called the Septuagint. And in that Septuagint, the Hebrew word beser was translated into that euangelon, which we find used in the New Testament. Um, another uh, verse is in Isaiah 52. If you want to turn there, if, if you already flipped back, I'm sorry. But Isaiah 52, verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And again, that idea of why are his feet beautiful? That's an odd term for us today, but they didn't have Twitter or CNN or, or you know, cell phones back then. So the way to get news from one place to the other is they would have to send a messenger. And usually they'd pick the fastest guy in town and say, run to the next town and tell them the news. And as they were on the way, they would say, open up the gates. I have glad tidings. I have good news. I have an announcement. The town would gather around the town square and, and the crier would cry out, hear ye, hear ye, here's the announcement. And, and that's what the 
the writer of Isaiah is trying to portray here is the good news is God himself is coming. He's coming to the rescue. But the Romans also use these messages. They call them evangels. It's where we get our word, evangelism, spreading the good news. They would have evangels, which were joyful tidings, and usually they were related to the emperor. Every year they would make a big deal about the emperor's birthday. They would have a big festival. It would be a celebrated occasion. And in one instance, in 9 BC, an inscription was found talking about Augustus Caesar and his birthday. And it actually says this, the birthday of the God, referring to Caesar, they considered him a God. The birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of joyful tidings, which have been proclaimed on this account. I think Mark was very aware that that was typical of the Romans to announce the tidings of the emperor, and he's very intentionally saying, I have tidings about an emperor, but he's not from Rome. He's from heaven, and he's coming to tell us that he is the good news. So I, I, I think Mark was kind of tweaking that and knowing exactly what he's doing. Mark is proclaiming the good news that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself, and then he conquered it with his life and his love. But he says it's the beginning of the gospel. And I think he's very intentional to write the beginning. Where else do we find about the beginning of something? You go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. John, when he wrote his gospel, says the same thing. Right? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Mark is not being subtle here. Ooh, he's this mysterious guy. He's saying, no, Jesus is God. And if you didn't get it, you know, through my, my reference to the beginning that a new thing is about to happen, I'm telling you that everything that the prophets predicted has become historic reality in Jesus. And he calls him Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, right? It's, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua, Joshua which means God has become my salvation. Joshua was the one who took over from Moses, who actually led the people into the promised land to claim their inheritance. Our new Joshua is here, and he's become our salvation. And he says, God and mystery, I, I don't know which commentator I read, but I thought it was a pretty good quote. God and the mystery of his power and being can only be properly comprehended in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, you understand, is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ and Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. That wasn't their family name. And it's also, it, it's not the way you finish your profanity, right? I don't know why people take Jesus' name so flippantly, but how come no one ever hits their, their thumb with a hammer and says, oh, Buddha, right? No one ever stubs their toe and says, Muhammad, right? You take your chances with that one, wouldn't you? But yet we feel so casual to, to, to use the name of our Savior. But th that term, Christ, is not, is not his last name. It's his title. It signifies his authority. In, in, in Greek, it's Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, the anointed one, the one who will come to deliver his people from their sins. Mark is not ambiguous here. Jesus is the Christ. And if you still haven't got his message, who is he? The son of Yahweh. <laughs> We're familiar with these terms, but I think we come so familiar with them, they, they lose their impact. For a first century Roman audience, this would have been, what? That's just the first sentence. 
It's to get our attention. It's to draw us in. It's to say, this isn't normal, right? When we look into the eyes of humanity, this Jesus we see, but we see shining through them the light of essential deity. What he says is the gospel. What he does is the gospel. And, and God had this plan of redemption before the world was created. But Jesus now is entering into the fabric of history and implementing God's plan, which existed from before time began. All the way back in Genesis, in chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sinned, when God's pronouncing the curses, he talks about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he says, the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, the seed of the woman, but he will crush his head. That's the first declaration that the Messiah would come and he would conquer sin. He would conquer Satan and he would conquer death. I think it's Jane Vernon McGee said this, that the good news isn't a mystery to be unraveled. The good news is not a philosophy to comprehend. It's not a perspective to adopt or a set of principles to apply. The good news is a person. He is the long-awaited Messiah, God in flesh. His name is Jesus. And, and, and let me finish with this. Mark goes on to, to quote from the Old Testament. Again, it's, it's the only time, there's only two places in the, his entire gospel where he directly quotes from the Old Testament, and one of them is right here, so I think we need to pay attention to it. And it is actually, he says, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, but he actually quotes from Malachi chapter 3, and Malachi himself is actually just paraphrasing a prophecy from Exodus chapter 23 himself, and then he strings together another quote from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, and it was common then in, in, in the first century for writers to do this. When there was like a main theme, and the, the theme here is God's message and his messenger and his way. And so he takes a few different prophets and he puts them together and he says they're from Isaiah, but he's doing that to give weight to the fact that Isaiah is probably the most known prophet, but also he wrote the most. So his, and Mark is going to quote or, or allude to Isaiah's prophecies throughout his gospel. So that's why he says Isaiah. It's not a mistake. Mark knew what he was doing, right? But when he puts all these things together, he's actually combining back in the, they would have the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, the law. And then they had the prophets. And then there was the third section of scripture they called the writings, which was your, your poetic works like Job and Psalms and Ecclesiastes. And so when you referred to the scriptures, a lot of times you would call them the law and the prophets. And so I think what Mark is doing is saying the entire Old Testament canon of scripture is alluding to, is pointing to, is taking us headlong to a place in history that is right now. It is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't want you to miss it. And, and even though we're 2,000 years down the road, he, he doesn't want us to miss it either. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's scripture. I'm just going to, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I, I, I want to, I actually want to read out the prophecies that he's quoting here because he changes them just a little bit. And there's actually more in the, in the actual Old Testament that, than he uses. He says in Malachi 3, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Notice that. I will send my, this is God, Yahweh, Jehovah God speaking. I will send my messenger, and in that he's alluding or he's, he's implying John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we're going to talk about him more next time, but his ministry was to prepare the people to receive the Messiah. So Malachi talks about that coming before it happens. I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, Yahweh. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. And then when you go to Isaiah... And, and read his prophecy in chapter 40, verse 3. And, and again, that's what Mark is quoting here. 
He's saying, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of who? Of the Lord, Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And then right after that, he talks about going up to the mountain and seeing, uh, talking more about the good news. But the idea that Mark is not being subtle here is he's saying, yes, John is coming to prepare the way of not just the Messiah, but Yahweh God. In Mark's mind and all throughout his gospel, Jesus is Yahweh. He is God. And what does he say to do? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In the Roman Empire, they would do the same thing. When an emissary, especially the Caesar himself, but any, any governor or, or major official, if he was coming to town, you, they would go send and prepare his, for his coming. So if there were potholes in the road, they would get filled. If there were bridges that needed repair, they would get repaired. The town would be cleaned up. It's no different today, is it? Like a politician wants to get a couple of votes or let people know he's coming. I remember back when uh, Clinton, I don't know if he was either running for president or he was the president. I lived at the time in a section of Philadelphia called Mayfair, right near the Mayfair Diner. And the Mayfair Diner, um, it was, it's still there. It's a popular you know, diner. Um, but when, they, when the city found out Clinton was coming, man, they, they sent the team out right? I never saw Frankfurt Avenue look so good, right? Frankfurt Avenue is not known for its beauty, right? You don't say, hey, let me take you to Frankfurt Avenue and show you all the sights, right? I'll tell you, every corner in Frankfurt and Mayfair, there's bar, bar, pharmacy, bar, right? That's, that's every intersection in Mayfair. And, and so all the streets got clean, the potholes got fixed, the stores were given money to kind of redo, redo, even the sidewalks got cleaned. I never saw street sweepers do the sidewalks. Even the pavements looked good. And the diner itself is one of those old chrome, you know, diners. Man, you could see your reflection in it. And, and, and that was just for a, a political leader. But when, when, when the Holy Spirit, through Mark, who's quoting Malachi and Isaiah, when he says, prepare the way of the Lord, that's a whole different type of engineer that he's talking about. He doesn't want us to clean our house. He doesn't want us to wash the car, put out a turkey dinner. That's not what he wants us to prepare. He wants to prepare our hearts. Are you prepared? Don't worry, none of us are. Are, are you preparing? Right? Are you preparing to receive what Jesus is coming to start? God's kingdom. And, and it takes the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts to constantly be preparing our hearts to receive him. So we need an expert engineer. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts. And my challenge to you in the coming weeks as, we, as we're going to study through this gospel is please be reading ahead. Just start with chapter one. I know I'm not going to finish it by the next time I preach, so you got time. <laughs> take a few verses a day or, or, or read the whole chapter in one sitting. If you really want a challenge, take, read through the whole entire gospel in one sitting. It took me about an hour and a half, right? It's, it's an endeavor, but I think you get, it paints a picture. But here's what I want you to do. As you're reading, put away everything you think you know about Jesus. Put away everything you think that you've heard or understood or learned. And just say, Lord, I want to look with fresh eyes at who you are and what you want to do. Because you know what? Even though it's been 2,000 years since he walked on this planet, he still speaks. He still changes lives. He still leads his people into his kingdom. So if you would do that, if you would just say, Lord, let me see you. And then spend some time and just reflect on what you see and what you hear. And then say, Lord, what do you want to say to me? 
And you know, I don't think he's going to speak audibly to you, but when you, when you match God's word with prayer and then listening, you will receive from the Holy Spirit what he wants you to hear. If you'll do that, I guarantee you, your life will not be the same. Would you stand and allow me to pray for you? Oh, gracious God, thank you that you chose in all of world history to send Jesus at the time you did. And I believe that was the fullness of time and, and the exact perfect time for him to come. And Lord, it's sometimes in a 21st century mindset, it, it's hard to see completely the context of, of Jesus and, and, and what he said and what he did in those times. But, but Lord, I believe his message still stands. His words are still true. And Jesus, I believe you still give power to your words. And anyone who will diligently seek you, you will, he will find you. So, Lord, I pray for anyone who would take the challenge to, to read the gospel afresh and anew, and that they wouldn't look for a story, they wouldn't look for words of wisdom, but they would look for a person, and they would find you, and that you would speak fresh words, new words of life and freedom and love and forgiveness into their hearts. And may no one who takes this challenge, Lord, be the same, Lord, but be changed, be different as a result. So lead us, Jesus. We want to follow. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.